have your Bibles this morning, if you can open with me to the Gospel of John chapter 18. So the Gospel of John chapter 18. Welcome to the 40th message in our Gospel of John series. And let me just say this. There is a heaviness to where we are today in the Word and where we will be moving forward. And when we think about where we are today in John 18, it's time. No more signs, no more teaching, no more intercessory prayer. There is nothing left for Jesus to do but to give himself up to his betrayer and to lay down his life. And we know that on the way to the cross, Jesus is going to be tried, beaten, denied, mocked, and spit on. And for this reason, it's probably best to understand that Jesus' work at the cross begins here in John 18 when he goes out to meet Judas in the garden. And all of this marks the lowest point in Jesus' humiliation. Nevertheless, it's also here in John 18 that we see the glory of Jesus shine the most brightly of all the pictures in the Gospel of John. So by this point, John has prepared all of us to see the character, the love, the resolve, the strength, the mercy, the grace, the power of Jesus shine so bright in the midst of his darkest hour. So after the high priestly prayer that we saw last week in John 17, where Jesus prayed for himself, he prayed for the 11 remaining disciples, and he prayed for all future believers, which means he prayed for us. So after that, we find Jesus now in the garden. And it's perhaps the most striking feature of John's account is what John doesn't record. So meaning John does not record the agony that Jesus experienced in the shadows of the garden. So each of the first three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all took that route and showed what Jesus experienced in the garden. John, however, says nothing of the Lord's cries, nothing of his tears, nothing of the bloody sweat that fell from his brow. And John's whole purpose is not to show us, really, you know, all those things I just said show us the humanity of Christ. John's purpose is to show us the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. Therefore, he is the one who is in full control of all that is happening. And one of the most encouraging truths in all the universe is that our God is sovereign, meaning he is in control. There's nothing outside of the control of our God. God never gets caught off guard. God never says, oops. God never says, uh-oh. God never says, I didn't see that coming. So in light of that truth, John never shows us Jesus as the victim. He always shows Jesus as the victor. Even in chains, Jesus is victorious. And how do we know that? Because in John 10, Jesus says, No one can take my life from me. I lay it down and I will pick it up or take it up again. So Jesus is saying, listen, no one's taking this from me. No one is taking something I'm not well. I am laying it down, and because I lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. So the point is clear. Jesus is not caught off guard. Jesus is not surprised. He's not having to adjust the plan on the fly. This is the plan. This has always been the plan. Therefore, Jesus is not a victim of his circumstances. He's orchestrating the circumstances. He is the director in all that we see. So I want us to dive in this morning and let us see his betrayal. And we have one more verse than we did last week. Uh, last week, I let you, no, we have the same amount of verses. Last week, I let you stay seated 
it just, just didn't feel right for me. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. We're going to read verses 1 through 27 of John 18, and it says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kadron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear, his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since the disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues, in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I have said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter also denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father, we come to this very dark moment in the life of our Savior. But we know this was the moment that he came. He came forward to die for our sins. Today we pray that we would see the beauty and glory we would see the restoration that's found even in betrayal. And we would see, Jesus, that you know you are working. You're not caught off guard. And that is true in John 18. That's true in our lives. So just work today, we pray. Speak, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So Jesus 
always exhibited control over all people, all events, all circumstances, and that control continues in his arrest and betrayal, in his mistreatment, in his unjust trials, in his execution, in his burial, and of course his control is seen most evidently in his resurrection. But because Jesus is orchestrating the circumstances here, it just makes sense that all things that are happening are pointing somewhere. So there is a purpose in every detail that's given. Let me just give you two clear pictures just from verse 1. In verse 1, we read that Jesus led his disciples across the brook Kedron and into the garden. So everything about this is significant and shows why he came. Up in the temple at that time, throughout that day and the next day, which would be Passover, there would have been a massacre of lambs. It is said that one historian said a few years after Jesus' death that on a two-day period at Passover, 250,000 lambs are massacred. So just think with me here. All the Passover lambs were slaughtered over a two-day period, and their blood was running down the altar like a river. It would have run into channels, and those channels would take the blood out of the backside of the temple mount, down the temple slope, into, hear this, the Kidron Brook. Therefore, this brook, on the day that Jesus crossed over, would have been red with the blood of lamb after lamb after lamb. And there, Jesus steps across all that blood that was a sacrifice that could not take away our sins on the way to offer himself as the only sacrifice who can. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Surely his sacrifice would have been vivid in his mind in this moment. But then we come to what John says in verse 1, a garden. Now this garden, as we know, is Gethsemane, which means olive press. So on the Mount of Olives were olive farms, where you would find olive presses everywhere where they would take the olives they would put them in the presses they would crush these olives and from these olives would come olive oil so olive oil at that time was like gasoline today it fueled oil lamps it was used for anointing it was used for cooking olive oil was literally the bloodline of the nation of israel and although jesus had spent time alone in the garden of gethsemane praying to the father himself he had spent time with his disciples in the garden praying with them this is different because this is the point where Jesus is entering to literally a place of crushing. And over 700 years before this moment, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be crushed for our iniquities. He would be crushed for our iniquities. This is happening in this moment. Blood and crushing. And of the things that John doesn't mention, I want us to talk about something that none of the gospel writers mentioned, but something that I, I can only imagine had to have happened. And that is the hideous words that Satan must have been speaking in the ear of Jesus in this moment in the garden. Perhaps Satan would have sought to undermine our Lord's confidence and his ability to carry out the mission that has been given to him. I can just think of Satan saying, just look at yourself. What makes you think you'll be able to bear up under what is to come? Are you sure you're prepared for your family to watch you? Are you prepared for your mother to stand at the foot of the cross as everyone mocks and slanders your name? Or Satan even saying, Jesus, you look 
not good. You, you don't look in good physical shape. What happens if you die before you get to the cross? It would all be for nothing. Just give it up. Or that Jesus was alone in this moment, had to provide arrows for Satan to fling at our Lord. Look around, Jesus. Where are those to help you? Look at these followers of yours. They're weak. They're selfish, sinful, prideful, arrogant, stupid men. You say they're your best friends, but where are you or where are they when you need them most? They're asleep. They can't give you one hour of attention. And one of them, Judas, is about to betray you. And when he does, all the others are going to run from you. And even your heavenly father is about to forsake you. Give it up, Jesus. Just give it up. And when Jesus went and found his disciples asleep, unwilling to pray for him, Satan had to have gloated. He had to have gloated in that moment. See, I, I told you so. They care so little about you, yet you intend to endure an eternity of wrath for them? Really? Really give it up? And I can almost hear Jesus saying, yes, I will gladly endure an eternity of wrath for them. Even though they can't give me an hour to help me, I will give my all to help them. And that is the beauty of our Savior, and that is the beauty of this very moment. So what I want us to do in light of all those realities, I want to lay three truths before us related to the betrayal that Jesus is facing in this moment. Three different betrayals that we are going to see. The first is this, betrayal in the garden. Betrayal in the garden. So a night that would have been filled with indignities and injustice began with Jesus' betrayer, Judas Iscariot, invading Jesus' prayer sanctuary. In the Garden of Gethsemane, accompanied by armed troops to arrest the Savior of the world. And John doesn't say that this is the Garden of Gethsemane, even though we know that it is. It could be incidental that John leaves Garden of Gethsemane out, or John could be wanting his readers to think about the last time a garden was significant in history. I think that's probably what John has in mind, the Garden of Eden. It was in the Garden of Eden that the first man... Adam had a confrontation with the enemy, with Satan, and he lost. In that garden, temptation overcame him and overcame Eve. And sin corrupted not just them, but all of humanity. In our passage today, Jesus, who Paul later calls the second Adam, is in another garden where Satan once again appears, I believe, tempting Jesus, but also appears in the person of Judas, armed with troops in order to arrest Jesus, yet this time in this garden, there would be no submitting to the will of Satan. In the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned. He ran. He fled. He hid from God. Yet here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus presents himself fully to the will of God. I love the words of D.A. Carson who says, In the first garden, not your will, God, but mine be done. Changed paradise to a desert. And brought man from Eden all the way to Gethsemane. Now, not my will, God, but yours be done. Brings anguish to the one who prays it, but transforms this desert into a kingdom. And brings man all the way from Gethsemane to the very gates of glory. All that happening in this moment. Jesus was a path of obedience, walking faithfully. 
in God's plan to save unfaithful people, even in the midst of their own betrayal. So when unfaithful people showed up in the garden with betrayal in their hearts, it wasn't Jesus who was caught off guard. It was them. It was them. Look at verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers. Now some theologians believe a band meant 200 men. Others say no, a band meant 600 men. Regardless, here's the deal. There was a SWAT team. In that moment that surrounded the Garden of Gethsemane, all with bad thoughts and bad intentions in their mind and heart towards Jesus. John goes on. Band of soldiers, some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Verse 12 says the band of soldiers and their captain, the officers of the Jews, arrested Jesus and bound him. John doesn't include it, but the other three Gospels do, that Judas came up to Jesus and kissed him. He kissed him. Everyone knows a kiss is an expression of affection and intimacy. Betrayal, on the other hand, is an act of treachery and deceit. A kiss of betrayal is a contradiction in terms. It's like saying that someone had a smile of hatred or saying that someone laughed with sorrow. Those things don't go together. So to speak of a kiss of betrayal is to say that what ought to be a token of friendship and love and affection has become an instrument of treason. Or to put it this way, in order to betray Jesus, Judas literally had to kiss the very face of God. Think about that for a second. In order to betray Jesus, Judas had to kiss the face of God. And our first impression in reading all this would be to think this is totally out of Jesus' control. But then we read in verse 4 that Jesus went forward. And in verse 6, we read that everyone else fell backwards. In verse 4, we read that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen. And because he knew everything that was going to happen, get this. In the first 11 verses, Jesus asked all the questions. Who are you seeking? Again, who are you seeking? Again to Peter, did you not think or know I had to drink the cup? Jesus is asking all the questions. He's in control here. Don't miss his control. But when Jesus says to the men who come out, who do you seek? They say Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. Now, all the English translations of the Bible include the word he, but the Greek there is just literally, I am. Several times in the Gospel of John, Jesus has used that statement, right? We've covered them. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You are the branches. I am the resurrection and the life. And now Jesus says, I am. And he momentarily displays some form of his glory, so much so that everyone there is knocked backwards. This great military cohort carrying weapons is not knocked backwards. This same voice that said to the sea, be still, to the storm, be still, and it went silent. This same voice who said to sick people, get up, take up your mat, and go home. This same voice who spoke to dead people and said, live is speaking here, and now he says, I am. He is totally in control. He is writing the script in this moment. And just imagine that you're one of the officers, one of the religious officers, and you have showed up with a whole detachment of soldiers armed to the teeth 
ready to arrest one unarmed man. And imagine that he simply speaks and every single one of you is blown off your feet. Imagine for a moment picking yourself up and then having to pretend that you're in control. Having to pretend in that moment that somehow, some way, you are in control. And of course, this section ends with Peter pulling out a sword. So apparently Peter had a concealed weapon. He pulled it out and he tried to decapitate the high priest's servant. And I say decapitate and you might say, hang on a second. It just says he, he cut his ear. Here's what I believe. Peter was a great fisherman. Peter was a terrible swordsman. Terrible swordsman. Meaning that when Peter pulled out this knife, probably like he had it concealed. He was waiting for the right moment. He pulled it out. He went, ah! And then he realized, I didn't kill him. I only took off his ear. And I can imagine what Peter must have looked like in that moment. Like, oh no. Like, uh-oh. Like, this isn't what's supposed to happen here. But Jesus, of course, steps forward. The other gospel writers say that he took this guy's ear and put it back on. Miracle. And then he turns to Judah, or to Peter excuse me, and says, didn't you know I had to drink the cup? The cup that would be filled with the wrath of God. Jesus says, the wrath that you deserve, didn't you know I had to drink it all? But just think with me for a second. What would have happened had Peter gotten his way? Just, just imagine for a moment if Peter, 200 soldiers around him, somehow... Peter just mustered all of his will and power and killed every single one of them. And then said, Jesus, follow me. Let's get out of here. You know what would have happened if Peter would have gotten his way? Not only would Peter never be forgiven of his sins, we wouldn't either. If Peter would have gotten his way, there would be salvation for none of us. Aren't you happy that Jesus and not Peter in this moment are in control? Aren't you happy that Jesus and not even Judas in this moment, are in control. There is betrayal in the garden, but then secondly, there is betrayal in the courts. There's betrayal in the courts. We read in verses 19 and 20, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. So when Jesus was about to be brought before the authorities for a trial, Jesus didn't just go to one trial. There's not just one trial before his crucifixion. There are literally six separate trials. The first one was here before Annas. The second one was for, before Caiaphas, the, the true high priest in that time that was put there by Roman rule. The third is the ruling body of the Sanhedrin. So first three trials were religious trials. Then you have the fourth trial, Pilate. The fifth trial, Pilate sends him to Herod and Antipas. And in the sixth, Herod sends him back to Pilate where the final verdict is rendered. And here's the point. The Jews and their religious authority, they had zero authority to execute capital punishment. The only way to get Jesus to die is to let the Romans sign off on it. They needed the Romans' help. In this first trial, Annas peppers Jesus with question after question about who Jesus or what he believes, about who his disciples are. And Jesus responds with a pretty sharp answer. And here's what he knew. Jesus knew that the trial that he was now facing in this moment was an illegal trial. According to Jewish law, you never could address the accused first in court. You had to ask for witnesses. And so Jesus says, go and get witnesses. 
Go and get witnesses to your charges, but they don't do it. This week, I, was, I found a list from the Jewish Mishnah, which was the oral traditions of the Jewish law. And there's a section within the Mishnah of 18 rules that the Jews were to follow in every court case. I'm not going to read all 18 of them to you. I'm going to give you a few of them. Rule number one stated that no trial was to be conducted during the night hours. So when did this trial take place? At night. Rule number two, trials were not to occur on the eve of the Sabbath or during festivals. Is there a festival going on right now? Passover, not just a festival, the biggest festival of them all. Rule number three, all trials were to be public. So all trials were to take place in the hall of judgment in the temple precinct. So what we see, especially in this religious standpoint, of private trial after private trial after private trial. Rule number six says the accused person can't testify against himself. The requirement was for witnesses to be brought in first. But what happened this night? The Sanhedrin, the chief priests, interrogate Jesus personally. And then when Jesus says, you need witnesses, they slapped him in the face. Rule number 12 says the high priest is not to participate in questioning the, the accused. Did they break that rule? Twice. Twice. Two different high priests. And then finally, rule 18, sentencing in a capital case is not to occur until the following day, meaning they were required to have a 24-hour period between the first meeting and the final verdict. And the reason is, according to the Mishnah, was to give room for mercy to arise. Yet there was no mercy here. There was no mercy to be found here. So rule after rule after rule was broken this night. These weren't trials by religious leaders doing religious and right things. This was a murderous plot to kill Jesus. But never forget, Jesus did not have his life taken from him. He laid down his life, and he picked it back up. And there, there are, of course, several points of application here, but I think the most obvious, the most simple, and yet the most profound is this. Betrayal, disappointment, failure are possible even among religious people and among religious leaders. Even in the church, hear this today, your leaders will disappoint you. I will disappoint you. We want to love you. We want to serve you faithfully, but we will fall short. But here's the beauty. Jesus will never fall short. He'll never fall short. He'll never fail you. He's always faithful to you. And here's, here's the deal. Yes, I know some of you have been hurt by church people and even by leadership in the church. And know this, your hurts can be very, very real, very, very true, very, very hurtful. And at the same time, Jesus can still be true. At the same time, Jesus can still be true. Meaning, human people can do what human people do and let you down even in the name of Christianity and Jesus still be true. Here's where we have to be very, very careful. Sometimes what we do is we use the excuse of how someone has treated us for how we treat Jesus. We say, well, they've treated me this way, so I'm not following Jesus. Well, Jesus never did that to you. 
Jesus has never done anything to you but love you and die for you. And yet we say, because they did this to me, I won't follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there will come a day when we will stand before Jesus and we won't be able to use how someone else treated us as an excuse. The only thing we'll be able to say to Jesus is what do we do with him and what do we do for him? Will we use other people's excuse for not following Jesus? Listen, he, he's true. He loves you. And in this moment, Jesus never lost sight of why he came and he never lost sight of who he came for. I'm going to show you that in just a matter of moments, how Jesus had his eyes on a particular person, even though that person was betraying him. Jesus never lost sight. So betrayal in the courts leads us to number three, betrayal in the inner circle. Betrayal in the inner circle. Look at verses 15 through 17 on the screen, just verse 15, a little excerpt says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Now most scholars believe that other disciple was John the one who wrote this gospel, the disciple who Jesus loved. Verse 16 says, Peter stood outside the door, and of course John came and got him. But then verse 17 says this, don't miss this, because this is number one denial. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. It's striking, isn't it? The language that's used. When surrounded by 200 to 600 armed men, Jesus says, I am. And when confronted by a servant girl, Peter says, I am not. I am not. Here is a contrast between the unchanging, divine, determined faithfulness of Jesus and the changing faithlessness of Peter. Think about it. Peter is afraid. He's cold. He's forgetful. Peter is soon going to deny the one who loves him the most. Not just once, not just twice, but three times. If this was a baseball game, Peter would be what? He'd be out. You're done, Peter. Go to the bench. You are out. A rooster's crow ushered the shocking realization that the very thing that Peter said he would never ever do he had just done listen as much as we want to shake our heads at peter as much as we might even want to shake our fist at peter can we really can we really meaning do we not all know what it's like to have intentions that are good but follow through that crumbles do we not know how easy it is to say words of commitment i think of the words of peter in matthew 16 when jesus says who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. And from that, from that confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Sometimes, listen, it's easy to say words of commitment. Yet when we get hurt by someone or when we're afraid or when things begin to fall around us when circumstances that we don't want unwelcome circumstances enter our lives it becomes difficult for us to live out those words of confession and commitment fear pain worries insecurities can do a number on all of our hearts they certainly did a number on Peter's heart as he watched Jesus, the one who he had seen perform miracle after miracle with power. He had heard Jesus teach with authority. And now Jesus allows himself to be bound 
and arrested. And Peter had to be asking in this moment, how could all this be happening? Have you ever asked that question? There have been moments in all of our lives, circumstances have come in and we go, how? Like, God, why? I don't get it. I don't understand it at all. Peter didn't realize that the only way him or anyone else would ever be forgiven of their sins is for this very thing to happen. So in a moment of doubt and disappointment, Peter chooses distance from Jesus. And when Peter chooses distance from Jesus, what comes next is complete denial. Understand this, to to deny something is to declare it, it untrue. But when you deny Jesus... It means that you are saying with your words, with your thoughts, or with your actions that you don't really believe the truth of who Jesus is or who he claims to be or what he claims to be able to do for you. So when we deny Jesus, we are saying that we don't believe the truth of who Jesus says he is or what he says he will do for us. How heartbreaking for us and for Jesus. But before we give in to feelings of shame, let's look at one more ver- or a few more verses. Luke 22, 60 through 62. You can turn there or it's going to be on the screen. Luke 22, 60 through 62. And this is a, a passage that gives us a different picture at this moment, immediately following Peter's denial. It says this, 60 to 62, you see on the screen. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord, that's Jesus, turned and looked at Peter. Stop for a second. Understand the control of Jesus. He's so much in control that in this moment, he is able to put himself at the exact place, at the exact moment where Peter's final denial, a rooster crows, and he is able to look Peter right in the eye. This is control of Jesus every single moment. And then it says this, And Peter remembered the saying, of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The look that passed between Jesus and Peter in this moment was not a look of condemnation. I don't even believe it was a look of I told you so, even though Jesus had told him so. Jesus had said, you're going to deny me. And Peter said, never. They might. All of them might. But never me. I won't be the one. But here, I believe that this is a look. That in Jesus' eyes, his eyes are filled with compassion for Peter. The same way his eyes are filled with compassion for us today. A look that invites us to trust, to draw near to him once again. Listen, I, I strongly suspect that there are some, might be someone here, some here, who believe that you have horribly failed in your Christian life and you tremble at the thought of looking Jesus in the eyes. You're like it. Wouldn't turn out good if I looked him in the eyes. He'd probably just smite me dead. Just laser beams. That, that's what you think in your, your heart, in your mind. But here's the message. Jesus still loves you. He's still for you. He is still says, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I think we need to understand that reality. That we look at Jesus There's a hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. I think we need to do that more, especially in moments like this, and understand the truths and the promises and the forgiveness that he offers, while at the same time, we need to contemplate 
What's our actions and thoughts concerning forgiveness? Because the very next line says Peter went out and wept bitterly. He understood that he had sinned against Jesus. He understood what his sin meant. Do we understand that? I believe that we need to ask ourselves today, where are we denying Jesus' truth in our lives? Where are we denying Jesus' forgiveness in our lives? Are we receiving his forgiveness and are we extending his forgiveness to other people? Where are we denying Jesus' redemption? His redemption that covers every part of our life, our past, our present, and our future. Are we denying that? Where are we denying the hope that Jesus is for us? Are we walking in that hope? Are we living in hope? Where are we denying the promises of Jesus? All the things that he promised to do and to be for us. Where are we denying his claims? Where are we denying, hear this, his control? And you might be, no, he's in full control. You know what, we say that until things don't happen the moment we think they need to happen. And then we, we all of a sudden grab it. We run the other way. We make it so much worse. And then we bring it back to Jesus, a broken mess. And we go, here. Brothers and sisters, we, it's so easy to say he's in control until we don't get what we want. And then we take control. And when we take control, I don't know about you, I never do it better than him. I always do it worse. I don't know why that is. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I always do it worse. Nothing is beyond his reach and nothing is beyond his control. Even when things seem out of control. In him, everything is certain. No matter what we've done, no matter what the enemy might tell us, no matter what our circumstances might even say. On Friday, we read Psalm 42 together in our Bible reading plan. And two different times, David says this. One time he says, my tears are mocking me, saying, where is your God? Another time he says, the enemy has surrounded me, and they're asking, where is your God? There are times where our circumstances, the enemy, even our own voice or tears will say, where's God at? What's your God doing in this moment? And it's easy to believe in that moment that God has lost control. Not even one moment of our lives, even a betraying moment of our lives, is beyond his control. Bring our lives to him, broken as they are. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. We're going to call the praise team forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray. Oh, Jesus, we come before you in this moment. The one, Jesus, we see your control in every detail of this. Not one moment is out, outside of your control. That was true then, and Lord, it's true now. Not one moment of our lives is outside of your control. Even the betraying ones, even the most horrific moments of our life, you're able to restore. You did it for Peter. You can do it for us. Lord, help us today to think about areas of our life that we might in this moment be denying you. Do we believe that you're in control of every detail? Or are we living life as if we have to take control every day and every moment? Lord, forgive us of that. Forgive us for thinking we know better. Forgiving, forgive us for thinking, Lord, that we can do better what you promised to do, which is meet our every need. 
help us just ask ourselves today and to ask you, show us where we're denying you in our lives. Touch us right there. Have your way in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.